Hi everyone and welcome to Philosophy Rekindled with our focus book, the 1920 published version of Tertium Organum by P. D. Spensky. Today we are discussing Chapter 12 and we will be covering this chapter in two parts over separate podcasts. This is Part 2. You will find the audio version of this chapter as an additional audio to this podcast and you'll also find additional information on our website, philosophyrekindled.com. Today my guest is Peter Lancet, hypnotherapist, author and classic scholar. And I'm Alice Flanagan, fiction author, computer programmer and podcaster. Thanks so much for joining us and welcome Pete. So here's where we left off. I mean, how do you make the Empire State Building? Well, first of all, you've got to get an idea that I want to make the Empire State Building. And and however difficult it's going to be, you've got to really understand that you're going to follow this and it will happen. There are certain processes you follow and it will happen. Most people don't build Empire State Buildings, do they? Or, or anything equivalent in their lives. No. And there's a lot of us that don't do anything outside of the same process of going to work coming home, going to work, coming home. I think the people that, that step out of the mould get an idea to do something that's not the same as everybody else. They're the ones that are inspiring. So I wonder why he's using the word, I'll read you the, the extract, he's using the word now positive philosophy instead of um, positivism. Uh, is it one and the same? It's the he's same thing. Positive, he means the same, same thing. thing. Yeah, I thought he did. So positive philosophy affirms that all three orders of phenomena proceed from one cause lying within the sphere of study of physics. This cause is called by different names at different times, but it is assumed to be identical with physical energy in general. So I'll just read on a little bit further. Seriously analysing such an affirmation, it is easily seen to be absolutely arbitrary and, and not founded upon anything. Physical phenomena of themselves inside the limits of our existence and observation, never create the phenomena of life and the phenomena of consciousness. Consequently, we may, with greater right, assume that the phenomena of life and the phenomena of consciousness, there is something which does not exist in physical phenomena. He's been very, totally very agree. firm with his, yeah, very firm I, with his... Well, I totally um, agree with that. Yeah, I do too. And and this is where this book is heading, is he's, he's building us into this concept that... that you know, we are greater than just what I want we, to what we experience. Um, throw a, a little piece in there as well. You know, what physical things do we observe? The entire universe, the sun, the motion of the stars and the planets. We, we, you know, we think that we are observing those and maybe we are. And if that is the case, if we actually are observing these things, whose desire was it to put them there and to give them motion? Because it can't, they can't just have physically been created of their own accord, according to this, according to what he said there. So there must have been some consciousness somewhere that had an idea to create a universe full of stars and galaxies and, and put them in motion that we can observe and we can almost like work out a mathematical, um, path for them. And yes, and yes, we can do that. You know, the old model that he talks about of physics, it's still there. We, we, you know, we, we observe the motion of planets and we predict where they will be based on the calculations, you know, that, that have, well, let's just say Newtonian. There's arguments about earlier people and, and God knows what else, but we'll say like Newtonian physics will predict 
um, where things are going to go and where they're going to be and how they will react with each other. In terms of gravity, we use that to send um, rockets into space and more importantly, we use them to calculate how they can re-enter the atmosphere and, and get back here. Um, you know, we, we do all of that, but they're our ideas, the rockets. Whose idea was it to put the stars, planets, galaxies and set them in motion the way that they are? Because that is something that we have to, we have to now wonder about given what he said here. That's, that's what's implied by that. If you want to look at that question, which I think people, I'm not, I don't want to spend a lot of time on it, but I just, I just want to say that that's the implication. That's what's implied by this. It can't have just been some physical accident. It's a, a physical phenomena out of nothing. The universe has to have been, um, it's got to have come about by, um, a desire of some the, the consciousness of something we know not what i'd call it god but you know people can call it whatever they like but there is some greater external consciousness that must have created that i'm 100 percent with you and that is a brilliant extrapolation because when you really think about it how else how else do these things if, if physical phenomena can't create other physical phenomena they can just transform Nothing cannot give rise to something. Yeah, but they can't even transform unless something sets them in motion. If they, if they, if nothing set them in, nothing sets them in motion, they are this water, the water of alchemy, the, 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 the contents of the grail, if you like, which I do. And so something has to exert motion upon them, the breath upon the water, the logos, which, and by the way, logos, which is the Greek translation of the, the Hebrew, um, many people, uh, and certainly biblical translations, often use the, the term word, the logos meaning word. Actually, logos has far more of a meaning than that, and a, and a very, a much deeper interpretation of the Greek logos is idea. There you go. There you go. I mean, this is not something that, that Spensky just thought of. He, he is no, really no, 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 no. He's well involved. Some in concepts, he yes. We're at, a point, we're at a point where I think he even feels freer to discuss these things. Now he's starting to rid himself and divest himself of the mechanics of describing mathematics. Yeah, he's, 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 he's coming into his own now, and this is, I, yeah. this is brilliant stuff. This is good. I'm, I'm enjoying. So let's move on. Uh, he, he goes on to talk about measurement. He said... Uh, Moreover, we cannot measure physical, biological, and psychic. Now, he's using psychic now in my yeah, version. Yeah, I've got psychic. And in, bracket, yeah. Yeah, and in brackets, he's put or spiritual phenomena by the same unit of measure. So this is, this is where I'm saying he's really mixing up. He's, he's no longer talking about the phenomena of consciousness. He's now mixing up his terms in my version and calling it psychic in brackets or spiritual phenomena. So... Yeah, this is where I was um, talking earlier to say maybe maybe we're just going to use one of the same ideas with that though. Um, but he's saying we can't measure them by the same unit of measure or more correctly, we cannot measure the phenomena of life and the phenomena of consciousness at all. It is only the phenomena first mentioned, i.e. the physical, that we fancy we can measure, though this is also very doubtful. I'm not, I'm not going to agree with that because, um, we can measure the phenomena of life. You know, the way he's described the phenomena of life, reproduction and so on. And well, here you can, you can, you can. I mean, this is, this is exactly what the science of biology does. It finds ways of measuring it so that it can predict because that's what we want to do. 
Um, if you were, a, if you were the, one of the long discredited eugenicists, um, you know, you, you'd be doing, you'd be taking all kinds of measurements of life. And people measure the reproductive rates of particular animals so that they can predict the spread and so on and the scarcity and so on. There's all kinds of measurements that measure the phenomenon of life. So, um, I'm not sure that I agree with him and I don't, I, if he means something else, he's not making it clear because biology as a science wouldn't exist without being able to make measurements and determine yeah. things in that way. I don't know. He maybe means something else. I don't, I don't want to get stuck on it. We can certainly measure the length of life. We can measure, we all, we definitely know when something's dead. You know, we might know what life is, but we know when life is left. So we can measure how long life uh, from start to end in a particular being took place. Like there are certain measurements that we can do on life. Yeah, and so, um, you know, I'm, I mean, we, we'll, 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 pass, we'll pass over that. I don't, I'm not sure that, that he means what um, I'm interpreting it as, but he doesn't make it clear any other way. But you know, yeah, we do, we do measure the phenomena of life. But um, you know, and how and how alive are you? We we even determine how alive things are. Um, and I, what we what we do for that is is quite strange, isn't it? You know, a living being. Um, let's let's even say a human in a vegetative state. How alive is it? We have arguments about whether or not we should turn off the machines. We well, are, I think, we are, I think, we are constantly finding ways to measure things and we are, and we have found ways to measure the phenomena of life. As human beings, we're constantly doing that. If you're in a coma, yes, your amount of life is different to those that aren't in a coma. Isn't that true? I mean, you're. Yeah, well, when they're doing brain scans on people in a coma, there are different types of that. You know, there are the comas where they say, well, there's no reason why he or she shouldn't come out of it. But then there is the persistent vegetative state where the brain activity is virtually gone and life exists only because machines are pumping things through. You know, they're, they're forcing the heart to beat and so on. And, and the, that's where the arguments come in and people go to court. Should we unplug this machine from this dying baby and the parents will either say yes or they'll they'll end up going to the supreme court or something but you know you know what i mean it's we we measure we we do measure and we we like to we like to know um the degrees of certain the degrees of certainty about these things so his point is that we they're not even if we did measure it's not the same unit of measure we can't measure how many um kilos of coal are required yeah the only the only reason that we've 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 stayed on that for two or three minutes is because he says or more correctly it's one of those things he does which is so irritating where he where he acts with certainty where any fool can point out um an inconsistency and the fact that you may just well be damn well wrong which without any further explanation he is in this case because we as we've just discussed there are many measurements of the phenomena of life Many. Well he, well, he goes on further to maybe clarify himself. He says, in any case, we undoubtedly know that we can expect neither the phenomena of life nor the phenomena of consciousness in the formulae of physical phenomena. And generally speaking, uh, we have for them no formulae at all. Uh, I, I would like to go to a bio, the, the a Department of Biology at any university and get him to argue that one. But, you know. Consciousness, he can do, but he's lumped two into the same bracket, so that 
you are necessarily forced by his his sentence there to accept both or none. He shouldn't have lumped them together. Like no, that, they are separate. Because They're they are because separate. he's the one. For God's sake, he's the one who separated them at the beginning of this chapter. Very irritating. <laughs> let's yeah. Let's go, let's go back to where you talk about someone in a coma who's in a vegetative state, and the machines are keeping them alive. So, physical, uh, mechanical. The phenomena of life, the physical phenomena of life, yeah. Is being kept, kept going by mechanical means. Like something is keeping the blood flowing, something is keeping the heart going. Only if you're somebody that defines life as having thoughts, ideas, and consciousness, whether or not you're physically in a coma or not. We haven't, we haven't defined it that way though. And there's my point. And there's my point. They're not lumped together. Because no. you would say that person is still alive, but they mightn't have, we don't know, but they mightn't have the same thoughts. They're certainly not able to act on, on those things. So they're, they're separate things in my book. You've got consciousness, you've got life, you've got physical phenomena. They're three separate things. And there might yeah, be one. three separate that, things in yeah. mind. He just calls consciousness psychic phenomena, that's all. But they yeah. are, the, they are yeah. three separate things in my book. And then here, I don't, I don't know if he's trying to make a point to carry us, to carry us through to agree with him, but you know, you will not fool anybody that's done any kind of logical study whatsoever, study of logic whatsoever uh, by doing that. I, I mean, I'm, you know, I'm not the smartest um, person in the world, but I'm, I'm finding, I, I see these things all the time as we're going through, as you know. And I won't let him get away with it. And what I find really irritating is there was no need to do it. There was just no need for him to have done it. Why would you do it? We were picking up what he was putting down. We didn't need yeah. <laughs> to have this complicating yeah. it. So, yeah, so, Spensky, we were all good. Let's just, you know, sometimes I think yeah. we need to get the black texter and just start <laughs> crossing stuff out, you know, yeah. like if you were in editing it, you know, too much, too much. So let's move on. He then gets on to another 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 person he quotes. He's looking at uh, He's looking at the transforming of latent energy into physical energy and I think where is where he's heading he starts with the physical phenomena and he's giving as he's want to do is to bring someone else's work into to validate what he's saying and so he he talks about an essay from Vunt in the Northern Messenger 1888 and he and, and there's a whole big and I'm not going to even go into it a whole big quote from it but um I think what he's, what he's getting at is he's saying that Funt is backing him up that physical phenomena, you've got the latent energy, energy that's, that's, well, I used to call it potential energy in my days of science, uh, potential energy that can be, uh, liberated. Well, I've actually written that in my notes, potential energy at the side. Potential energy, yeah, that's what I learned it as. And so you can liberate that into large amounts of energy. Which is then called kinetic energy. Correct. It then becomes kinetic energy. Yeah. So even though it looks like you're creating energy in a physical phenomenon, you're actually not. You're transforming it from the potential into the kinetic. And that's, that's his point. That's what I think his point is. Well, then, you know, because obviously, you know, he doesn't mention it here, but then we need to mention the laws of thermodynamics, don't we? That energy can't be created or destroyed. So, Correct. So, so to anybody that knows even, even that, then you, and, and if you if you take it as as a truth, then you would you would understand that transformation of energy is all all we can do. Mm, exactly, exactly. So he's he's building. I don't believe it, by the way, but we'll carry on. 
We'll carry on. We'll, 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 we'll go through my scaffold and let's, let's, let's see where we head. So then he's getting on to, uh, the living organisms and he's, he's in essence saying that the living organisms can create so much more energy in the form of life and physical energy than just physical forces. And I'll just quickly read that through. The force contained in living organisms, the vital force, is capable of liberating infinitely greater amounts of vital and also of physical energy than the force of motion. The microscopic living cell is capable of infinite dissemination to evolve new species, to cover continents with vegetation, to fill the oceans with seaweed, to build islands out of coral, to deposit powerful layers of coal, etc., etc. So I think where he's heading is, I think as we go up the different levels of, of phenomena, we, we are getting more and more powerful, shall we say, uh, in terms of energy. And then he goes to say, but consciousness's potentiality is even more immeasurable and boundless. So, you know, that's, that's all well and good. But as I quote, concerning the latent energy contained in the phenomena of consciousness, i.e. in thoughts, feelings, desires, and in will, we discover that its potentiality is even more immeasurable, more boundless. From personal experience, from observation, from history, we know that ideas, feelings, will manifesting themselves can liberate enormous quantities of energy and create infinite series of phenomena. So I can go on with that, and I will in a minute, but I'm going to stop there. Yeah, I mean, where you've got the word will, I've got desires. Yeah, well, doesn't matter because I know what he means. I think, I, I think, um, I actually think that desires is worse, a worse word to use. I don't think it's as good as will. He's used, he's used both in mind. He's, he, to me, it looks like he's really giving us what he thinks consciousness is. He says the phenomena of consciousness, and I don't know if you've got the phenomena of something else. Um, no, I, if you've got the word consciousness there in yours. I've got, yeah, the phenomena of consciousness, i.e. in thoughts, feelings, desires, we discover that its potentiality is even more immeasurable, more boundless. So that's interesting because in mine, of course, I've got that and then and in will. He's taken that out in your, your version for some reason and I think it is, we, we've already talked about will in this chapter, it is the acting upon or, or the, the, well, I think the desire and the will go, go hand in hand, you know, you, you want something... So I'm not sure why he's taken that out. Um, and then he's saying also that it's equated to ideas. From personal experience, from observation, from history, we know that ideas, feelings, will manifest in themselves, can liberate enormous quantities of energy and create infinite series of phenomena. An idea can act for centuries and millenniums and only grow and deepen, evoking ever new series of phenomena, liberating ever fresh energy. And he does go on now to talk about thoughts as well. But I'm going to stop there for a minute because I think he's really starting to to corral what he's talking about when he talks about consciousness. He's starting to put all these words together as if they're, they're, they're the components of consciousness. And, well, I think hallelujah. At last week, uh, to me, I've got an idea of what he's meaning by consciousness because up to this point I've got a, something here and then something there and then something elsewhere and thinking are they separate, are they different, or are they components? Um, and, I, and I think what he's saying too about this having more more power, I, I think that is 
that is a good concept for me because it's basically saying that something has to start somewhere. And when you talk about, you know, where did this whole our solar system, all our planets and everything come from, and if they came from someone's desire, some consciousness's desire, then that would make a load of sense because we're not just talking about, you know, little old me or little old you. We're talking about how does this extrapolate to explaining our, our experience here? Your thoughts, Pete? I have nothing to add to that because that, that seems to me uncontentious great i really like this concept he's talking about thoughts and he talks about poetry and he's he's talking about the fact that things that were ideas and thoughts that that were of long ago are really really regenerating themselves when you read a poem and it evokes a feeling that that regenerates it in you that poem might have been written two centuries ago it's still manifesting in some physical way i don't really think we need to spend a lot of time on this it, it always, you know, it's it's so simple. Let's just say that actions take place on a massive scale in this world now because of the ideas uh, that surround Christianity or Islam, Judaism, and so on. Let's let's just say that. That's all we need to know. That that that's a great analogy for his point. He mentioned the the masters of ancient religions. Um, let us do it. Um, there you go. Those were ideas that were had thousands of years ago. They've spread. They've grown. They're bigger than when they started. And they conti- continue to have influence and impact over the actions and the, the, the phenomena of the modern world that we live in today. So there you go. There's, there's your proof of what he's saying is true. Ideas. Yep. An idea that was nothing more than something in somebody's head uh, is has lived long beyond that person who had the idea and has grown in ways that that person could never have even begun to imagine. So in other words, the idea has taken on a life of its own in the way that it has yes. sparked ideas in the minds of others. It has spread like a, a contagion in many ways. I know contagion is a word that has a negative connotation, but, you know, it's, yeah, well, I'm on about the spread. Yeah, and, and grown stronger. So he's, he's, he's basically, I think the correlation of phenomena to me is saying that potential energy, they all have potential energy and this potential energy is even, uh, in each is stronger and less dependent on time. Uh, the further it is from what is, the further you get from what is visible and sensed. And I think that's his, that's where he's building to, and this is what he says. The remarkable correlation of phenomena may be expressed in the following terms. The farther a given phenomena is from the visible and sensed, from the physical, the farther it is from matter, the more there is in it of hidden force, the greater the quantity of phenomena it can produce, can leave in its wake, the greater amount of energy it can liberate, and so less it is dependent upon time. So... To me, is building out of that and saying, you know, this this concept of time being an illusion. You know, he's he's backing he's backing that now and saying, well, it's because we can see that that's energy that comes from from something that is not physical is far greater than that of something that is a physical phenomena, and and hence the further we move from that, the more powerful. Give me an example of a physical phenomenon that that you could actually be comparing it with. Okay, uh, I have to think. Because some physical phenomena do have um, lasting effects on the thoughts of people. Are you talking about some sort of disaster that happens? No, in it? 
keeps no. keeps oh, them well, in that. Well, not necessarily. Okay. What well, about the pyramids? No. Are you referring to the fact that we still look at them in awe? Yeah. That they're still inspiring? Yep. And then they've now um, stimulated further ideas in the minds of people uh, that there is something more to those pyramids than just burial tombs. And in fact, um, you'd have to be so conservatively, rigidly mainstream now to even think that they were burial tombs at all as to be, it's incomprehensible that anybody still thinks that way. Um, Because once you start bringing in other disciplines of the um, engineered split off of scientific investigation and academic investigation. In other words, you take archaeologists and you take ancient historians out of the picture and you bring geologists in. They turn around and say, oh, what's, what's wrong with you? This is quite obvious. That Sphinx, for example, can't just be a few thousand years old. It's got to be at least 15,000 because those are water striations there. We know how long limestone takes to actually wear out in this way, blah, blah, blah. So, you know, everything that you're teaching about that that particular monument is fake. But that's, you know, without going into hidden history and so on, the fact of it is that, um, yes, we do have physical monuments that do last. Do they, um, do they excite the, the imagination, the ideas, thoughts, and so on, um, of more people than mere ideas, words do? No, they don't. Because there are fewer people who are investigating and living with pyramidology than there are people who live by the ideas and thoughts. I mean, uh, an idea that you could say has survived quite well and has grown and developed is democracy. I don't believe in it, and I don't. I think I think modern democracy is fake. But you cannot deny that you know millions, if not billions, of people the world over either live by it and think that it's worthy, or aspire to be in a country that has it. You can't deny it, and that's just an idea. There's nothing. There's nothing monumental that makes us say, oh, democracy is great. You can point to the Parthenon um, in Athens and say, look, this is the home of democracy. But the Parthenon isn't actually what's kept that idea alive. It's the, it's the written word. It's the idea translated into the written word, the history that tells us that it happened. And the, the history of Athens and the history of Athenian democracy is the history of democracy versus tyranny. The Persian Empire considered tyrannical. The Athenian um, hegemony over <laughs> after the the Peloponnesian War, well before the Peloponnesian War, was considered to be this great flowering of every person's right to be involved. So that's a very good point. That's the that's an idea that has grown, transformed, strengthened. Because I have to tell you, you will not find a version of democracy anywhere on this planet now that even remotely resembles Athenian democracy and you could now we have the internet that means you could people en masse could be allowed to vote on every single decision we don't need representative democracy where we have MPs that don't vote for the things that we want to have we could actually have everybody with a keyboard saying okay this is this is the thing that's before parliament now put your finger get your finger ready yes or no yes or no yes or no vote 
boom, done. Everybody, millions of votes. It could, the result could be there in an instant. Okay, we're, we're bringing back hanging or whatever it is that the populist vote is. Because that's one of the things that you'll read, um, if you read any of the histories of the Athenian democracy. And one of the reasons that it fell was because the mob was ruling. It was ruled by the mob. And people who wanted to get their ideas through ended up having to placate the mob. Which, you know, has its own issues, doesn't it? Yeah, of course it does. You know, but, but yeah. you cannot deny that this idea of de- democracy has survived all of these years. It's grown. It's bigger. It's become a thick, it's become something unimaginable to the ancient Athenians. It's just unimaginable what it is and that it's that it is an aspiration and that people are fooled into thinking that it's worthy <laughs> it's amazing how how much power it 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 has and it was just an idea from a small city state and if you if you build on that and you say well has that idea become so entrenched that people don't question it and similarly with other things that that we see well, you can you can see um in, in many cases where you've got something that is a given, people don't question it anymore. It's an idea. You look at the, yeah. um, say, some of these uh, religious texts and, you know, some of those say, uh, I'm not that I'm an expert on the Bible, but, I, you know, there are some places in the Bible where they say, you, you know, it's okay to stone your neighbour or something like, something violent like that, and everyone goes, oh, that's not very good. But, you know, it's it, what he means is X, Y, Z, but the idea still survives that the Bible is what but what he means is i think we should start what i think we need to watch the life of brian again and that'll give you <laughs> an idea of how that works <laughs> i want to go back to your concept of the pyramids because i'm interested in in how that relates because i felt this this paragraph that he had made sense to me this the one i read earlier this remarkable correlation of phenomena may be expressed in the following terms the farther a given phenomena is from the visible and sensed, from the physical, the farther it is from matter, the more there is in it of hidden force. And then it goes on, you know, like I've read before. So, you know, we're looking at ideas lasting for a long time. We're looking at life being quite finite, but, and we're looking at the pyramids lasting 2,000 years at this point. Way more than that, five. Sorry, yeah, that, my, my, my lack of history. But <laughs> So what do you think, if we look at that, the pyramids as an example, the life of the people who built the pyramids and the idea that that came, that, that made the pyramids come into existence? They're kind of, a, they're kind of three things that, that were happening well, I, at I the understand, time. I understand that. Um, I, you know, I you can't deny that there is the physical form. I mean, with democracy, it is it is just an idea. It, and even when it's democracy in action, it is still an idea. What we would look what we would look at is that if if democracy, if the idea of democracy ever died, what monuments are left behind to stimulate its continued um, existence and power with at least a small population of people? I don't know. See, the pyramids have done that. The way of life, the way of understanding the, the universe, the way of understanding consciousness, they, even the mainstream people have to understand that there is an Egyptian book of the dead and it says this, 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 and this, and this, and they did have this belief system and that. Even if you only look at it on the surface, it's all of that has survived through the physical, material property of the pyramids, the hieroglyphs painted on them, the art, and so on. 
the physical papyri that we we still have, you know, the ones that are still extant that we can we can piece together history from, plus the writings of people like Herodotus who went there and and others and so on, and then we get the the archaeological um, rebirth of them. They 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 were buried under sand for so long, and then Napoleon went there, and Napoleon took a third army with him, and that army was an army of um, illustrators, painters, and archaeologists, and they're the ones, you know, they, they started digging the sand away from the pyramids so that we could see them, and and so on, and they, they, I mean, hundreds of artists went, you know, and they were documenting, they were, they were drawing um, illustrations, and that then stimulated the idea. Everything became Egyptian in the early part of the 19th century in Western Europe. I mean, it, it was the, the big fashion. Uh, and obviously, Napoleon took loads and loads of it. If you go to Paris now, you go to the Louvre, you'll see loads more Egy Egyptian antiquities than you will anywhere else. Um, the next, the next most you'll see is in the British Museum because after the Battle of the Nile and um, Napoleon's army was destroyed in Egypt and he had to leave, guess who went in? The great colonizing rapist nation of all time, Britain. And we, so, so we hot-footed it with everything that was, that was transportable that was left and we brought it back to England like we always do. But that, that, that's, that rekind, but that rekindled the idea of what the pyramids represented. And now the real idea, the idea behind what they really are is starting to regenerate. It, it, but only because the pyramids exist. So I'm going to say that the material form does have more power than perhaps Suspensky gives it credit for. But I am going to suggest that the idea itself is the thing that grows the biggest and the best. I, I will agree with him, but I don't think we should negate the power of um, the material thing. He does mention the uh, things like poetry as well. He, he mentions poetry quite a bit, and I, I'm glad we skipped over it. But I will say that poetry is material unless it's unless it's only handed down orally um the way that say the the druid storytellers would and the the dark age storytellers would then we do have material um form keeping keeping the idea alive in the form of books books are definitely materialistic and and you raise a very good point there because i'm thinking a lot of ideas have a symbol associated with them and that's a physical mm. Well, the, um, because poetry, you know, which, which, you know, he rightly says does inspire ideas in people that, that it does inspire, uh, and that go on to do things. But you look at that, that great one by Shelley, Ozymandias, look upon my works, ye mighty in despair, where Ozymandias set up a material, um, monument that, that was then fallen in the sand of the desert. And he knew that it was going to fall. And which is why we have the words, you know, look upon my works, ye mighty in despair. Now, that is an idea that has endured and grown, the idea that nothing that we create can be static, can be still. It will entropy at some point. We'll, we will get the law of thermodynamics, even with ideas, is suggested there. It, it, it also, it's an idea that suggests limitation, rather than oh, one human being could set in motion an idea that creates a universe. Interesting though, but I mean that, that we're stuff, going yeah. a little bit off topic here. But I I understand what what he means, and that ideas can persist and grow uh, uh, to then create phenomena much greater than just merely combining two material phenomena 
himself. Yeah. Already. You know, the transform, the physical transformation that he spoke about, particularly chemistry. We can fiddle around in labs and we can do this, that and the other, but it won't have as much of an effect as an idea will. I do wonder about um, things like nuclear weapons now, though, because they... That is a material um, phenomena that could, that could actually just destroy the planet. Well, yes, that that is possible, but so far so good. It wasn't. It wasn't possible in Uspensky's time, so you know. No, no, but you know, the dinosaurs were wiped out by something that you know took out life, and and something regenerated in its place. So. I think they died of boredom. Anyway, <laughs> carry, ca- so, let's carry on. We're we're doing well here. This is good. Yeah. So. Look, I just want to um, just point out too that he is he is pulling time in. He's pulling time in again to say that it's it's an irrelevant concept in essence. And I and I think if, where he's where he's pulling it in to say, well, when you look at things in time, so the life of a man happens in a time period, and then it's gone because it's a material thing. Uh, the body is a material thing that only lasts a certain amount of time. But if you look beyond that, the ideas that that man generated can go on well past that time. So so we, we're moving into, because he's, he's building on this to, to his final end point, he said, um, if we correlate all of the above with the principle of physics, that the amount of energy is constant, then we must state more exactly that in the preceding discussion nothing has been said of the creation of new energy, but of the liberation of latent force. And we have found that the liberating force of life and thought is infinitely greater than the liberating force of mechanical motion and chemical reactions. And uh, then he says in italics, the microscopic living cell is more powerful than a volcano. The idea is more powerful than a geological cataclysm. Well, I'm with him. I'm okay. I'm happy to, to go with that. Just from the point of view that what he's saying is that uh, if you if you if you're transforming if you're looking at uh, physics and, and, you know, energy can't be created, it's just transformed from potential to kinetic energy and, and that's that's the laws of physics, then that doesn't take into account the liberating force outside of that, of, of thoughts, ideas. Well, he sees, he, he is assuming then that a volcano isn't a living thing, you know, fair, fair enough, and I, I can understand that. What would what would happen to an idea if this Earth was visited by a species killing event? You mentioned the dinosaurs earlier on, and you know they were wiped out. The the accepted wisdom at the moment is a sixty five million year old um, meteor a- asteroid collision. Blah 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 blah. Um, if those dinosaurs had had ideas. Those ideas would not have survived a natural, unconscious cataclysm. Instead of volcano, let's let's say asteroid. Um, so, Mr. Uspensky, you only get three out of ten for that that idea. That idea is not going to persist. So it seems to be that the only way an idea persists is because it is passed on in a physical sense, either by the speech or by something on a tablet or something that that people uh, interacting with each other carry the idea. So without those people or without life... Are we calling speech and other people physical phenomena, though? Uh, I don't know. I don't think that's what he means. I don't think that's what he means by it, I, I, you know, by his idea. I think he means structures. 
Because it, because otherwise he's negated himself, hasn't he? If if people are if people and speech are physical phenomena, and i.e. phenomena that can be perceived by the senses, which they are, um, then he negates his own <laughs> his own premise. No, I'm pull, I'm pulling this not from Aspensky, but from what you've just mentioned when you said, say, there was a cataclysmic uh, event and life on mm-hmm. Earth was wiped out. What will happen to the ideas? And then I'm I'm extrapolating on that and saying, well, then that would mean that the ideas only exist as long as a physical form yeah. exists to pass it on. So I'm kind of saying, yeah, I, yeah now I see where you're yeah. going. Yeah, I understand that. Now, yeah, and I and I agree with that. So the physical form has to be there. It has a place. Now, the, the same physical form that create, that was around when that idea happened is not necessarily there. No. But, but physical forms, and you're right, because, yeah, uh, unless there is, well, do you know, maybe those, maybe those ideas are stored somewhere else and we can tap into them. Well, here's the interesting thing, you know, even with something like the, the pyramids, which I, which I brought in, at some point they will go. They will erode if, you know, all things being equal, no cataclysms and so on. Eventually, they would erode to nothing. And then we would be left with just the idea of what they used to represent. Unless we've got, you know, unless we've kept loads of pictures and records and so on and we count those. I don't know. It's interesting. Though. But the, phys- the, the physical thing that, the physical thing that first carried it through, i.e. the pyramids, are now replaced by another physical thing that holds the idea, photographs, writings, interpretations, and so on. Even time capsules. I'm interested in the idea that they, that these things stand apart because do they? Does an idea persist through time without something physical to carry it through? I'm I'm starting to think now that no, it can't. Well, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna. <sighs> I'm thinking differently at the moment. Just just came to my head. Where does the idea come from? Like, it's got to come from somewhere other than the brain. We've gone through this before. Yeah, so the yeah, idea I, I, is mm-hmm. is coming from somewhere. So just because today I pull an idea down from wherever it comes from, doesn't mean that when I'm gone they're they're not, they're not hanging there. Maybe there are dinosaur ideas hanging, ready well, for us to pull down as an idea. You know. Well. I think I'll I think I'll have that uh, nice bush. It looks delicious. <laughs> Dinosaur thought, <laughs> but oh, uh, I, thought, I thought you were telling me what you were having for dinner. Um, the <laughs> yeah the yeah okay. So we're saying that something persists in the ether. Um, there's no evidence to suggest um, that that's something that we can possibly know. In as much as He's talking about ideas, and he's very specific. I mean, he talks about ideas being carried through from poets, and he and he even names some, doesn't he? He names Lermontov and Pushkin and Homer. Well, I think that's an example, but but when you're you're talking about the fact that, say, life got obliterated, and say aliens came down, new life form populated the planet, didn't have any idea of there's, there's no legends, there's no there's no way of of passing on those ideas. And so uh, an alien X is sitting there and he gets an idea. He gets an idea about something. Where did that idea come from? What well, does it matter? I mean, that's pretty arbitrary. We've, we've no way of knowing that, that that is happening at all. He's got no way of knowing whether that's happening at all. And he's not suggesting it. Well, he's suggesting that ideas last outside of the physical form. 
and that's what yeah, I'm and the only ones and the only ones he mentions are ones that have been written down as poetry or as religious texts. I'm not referring to what he's written. I'm referring to the comment you made. What happens if life is obliterated? Yeah, I know. to those ideas. Yeah, but and then I'm saying. I'm only yeah, but my my point was only made in relation to what he's written. If we if we want to go on a, onto a different non-Uspensky topic and okay. talk about All right. the persistence of memory and the persistence of ideas. Oh, by the way, that persistence of memory. I'm sorry, that's a Salvador Dali painting. But uh, the but yeah, I, I actually it's a, it's a good phrase and it does describe what we're talking about the the persistence of memory persisting after what. After the after a species killing event, I don't know. We don't know. He's not talking about it here. But I I was literally doing a criticism of of what he'd written as to stimulate a question. You know, it, it, what does he mean by this idea persisting uh, longer than than physical um, phenomena? Because it seems to me that every time he's describing the idea persisting, he's describing it persisting by using physical phenomena. Yep, you're right. That's the, that's the only thing I'm saying f- for that. That's the only thing I was bringing it up. Yeah, no, no, point taken. That's what he does. Because I, I take your point as well, that there is something in, shall we call it the ether? But there is something out there. There is, there is what Carl Jung described as the collective unconscious. Uh, and we, we're, but, but we're not there in this here yet. We're not there in this chapter. So. No, no, you're right. I, I digress. Well, I digress with you, but, uh, yes. Mm. It was a yeah. It was a it was a, it was an interesting digression, but let's not stay with yeah, it. Yeah, it was. Let's let's move on. Okay, so then he gets to the point where he's saying we don't really know anything about these three phenomena um, in terms of their their cause. So we we know their effects. We know we can we can see how they manifest to us, mostly in physical um, format. But uh, in essence, it is just. A theory, and he says, "Look, positivistic philosophy sees mechanical motion and electromagnetic energy as a basis of all phenomena. But the hypothesis of vibrating atoms or units of energy, electrons and cycles of motion, combinations of which create different phenomena, is only an hypothesis built upon a perfectly arbitrary and artificial assumption concerning the existence of the world in time and space." Look, he's covered that, I think. And I think that is the important bit there because. You know, this idea of cause is what you were alluding to, and I've, I've mentioned as well, this idea of a prime cause. Okay, we can, we can have positive um, philosophy and we can all be positivists, which I'm not. Um, and Uspensky definitely isn't. But then you have to ask the question, even if, even if you take for granted the Big Bang, which has definitely been disproven, it's posited on uh, redshift, and redshift is massively disproven. Uh, as uh, the interpretation of what it was, but even if you accept Big Bang, and we all we all started off, the universe came into existence with this Big Bang, this unstable concentration of of matter, and and off it goes. Um, what came before? Whose idea was it to destabilize that matter, the primum materium, mm-hmm. uh, and cause the Big Bang? Where does it come from? Positivism doesn't describe that. So basically, all of this cosmology about the beginning of time and the beginning of the universe is foolish unless you posit something beyond positivism. Something has to be there before it. And that, my friend, is Ostensky's point. And because, because you get this like, um, 
infinite series of questions, don't you? Well, who created the universe then? Who created the Big Bang? God. Well, who created God? Another God. Who created that God? Another God. So you keep going. You, you need to go beyond positivism. And that's where we are going with, the, with this story now. That is where we're going. And that's why this chapter I, I really enjoyed because I can see, I can see a direction. So I'm going to get to the very end of his, his, um, chapter and his last paragraph, the question concerning the relation of phenomena to the thing in itself, i.e. to the indwelling reality, has been from far back the chief and most difficult concern of philosophy. Can we, studying phenomena, get to the very cause of them, at the very substance of things? And we come back to his friend Kant. Kant has said definitely no. By studying phenomena, we do not even approach to the understanding of things in themselves. Recognising the correctness of Kant's view, if we desire to approach to an understanding of things in themselves, we must, we must seek an entirely different method, an utterly different path from that which positive science is treading, which studies phenomena, which is exactly what you've said. And I think him bringing back Kant kind of very neatly wraps up, because I was wondering where Kant was going to, you know, what happened to Kant. <laughs> he was so featured in the beginning, but he's exactly what you're saying. It is. And, you know, I, I, you, if we're investigating this, you know, causes, root causes, then you've got to go beyond positivism. Positivism will not take you there. No, it cannot, because it's only studying something uh, like the projection of the uh, cinema screen. Here, it's only, yeah. it's only studying what's projected on the screen. So that is Chapter 12. Thanks so much, Pete, for, for this discussion. It's been brilliant, and uh, I look forward to catching up with you for Chapter 13. And thank you, Alice. That was brilliant. I enjoyed that. That was fantastic. I'll see you next week. See you next week. Thanks, everyone else, for listening.